Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have of just serving you. And we pray that tonight, as we open your word once again, that we may discover truly what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might discover how you can use each one of us, use us with our various gifts and our various talents, our various abilities, each contributing to the other, to the building up of the body of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the the privilege of just sharing these things that are so pertinent to our day, so needed. We just pray that Christ may be glorified in that which is done. We'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. We're talking about the subject of discipleship as we find it in the book of Acts. As we consider this subject of discipleship, um, it's always a temptation for me to go much beyond what we intend. It's uh, a long enough series as it is, so we dare not uh, get too far afield. Uh, but as I was just meditating on the, the passages of Scripture that we'll touch on in the book of Acts tonight to show the outworking of discipleship ministry after the ascension of the Lord, and thinking particularly in terms of the service of a disciple. We've talked already about the spirit and the disciple and, and talked about the matter of uh, uh, soul winning and the disciple. And uh, we're, we're talking now about service and the disciple. And it's fascinating to realize that, that in the book of Acts we have a number of examples of those who served and when, I, when I'm speaking of examples, I'm not speaking of, of what we usually think of in terms of service. We, we right away, when we think in terms of service, we think of Peter and Paul and all of the apostles and, and their varying ministry. And that's rather taken for granted. They were indeed the disciples of the Lord. But there are, there are several uh, individuals who were specifically called disciples who were involved in ministry that I think a lot of times we depreciate. We don't think of so much as being service. And uh, I, I, I was thinking in terms of the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, where we're told that one of the responsibilities of the church, in fact, a major responsibility of the church, and probably, in a sense, almost the exclusive ministry of the pastor-teacher, is that of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And uh, it's always been God's intention, and this is really, uh, if you please, one of the basic philosophies for Valley Church. Uh, I think one of the things that makes Valley Church special, um, I was going to say different, but that, that might be misunderstood. It, it makes Valley Church special. Um, we, we do not have the philosophy here that we as uh, staff or I as the pastor have have the responsibility to do everything. We believe that it's the responsibility of the pastor to equip the saints. It's the responsibility of the saints to do the work of the ministry. And whenever we say that, I'll have to back up a minute and say, don't get the idea that that means that all I can do is teach. Because you see, I'm also a saint. And if I'm teaching you, I'm teaching myself. And in the process of teaching myself, then I will instruct myself also to do some of the work of the ministry. But in a very real sense, thinking of it in the very, very uh, pragmatic terms, what I do in the way of work of the ministry is as one of the saints sitting where you sit. But the pastor-teacher's responsibility is that of teaching the Word of God. And so it's all of our responsibility to reach out and to minister to others and to, to take care of needs and to, and to counsel and to, and to call on people in the hospital. And pure religion and undefiled is to visit. That's what the scripture says. Did you know that? And when you visit others, and the word visit means more than just go and see them, more than call on them. It means to meet their needs. But when you, when you reach out to others and meet their needs, then you are demonstrating pure religion and undefiled. And I think that it's so vital to realize that God has placed each of us as members in the body of Christ. One of these days, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, maybe when we get to heaven, we'll see how it all works. But one of these days, I just love to see a church where, where every single person who is a believer in that church 
recognizes that he must have an active part in ministry. I mean, where he sees that as absolutely essential. And it's, it's just as ridiculous for your arm to say, I'm going to quit functioning and make you a cripple, as it is for any one of you or any other person who maybe isn't here tonight but is a part of this body to say, I'm not going to do anything for a year. It cripples the church. And you see, somehow or another, we have to be gripped with the reality of this, that we are a body. And there is not one single member of the body that does not have significance. In fact, I can guarantee you that if there is a member of the body who does not have function any longer, then the master surgeon will cut him out. Just like you cut out your appendix or your tonsils, which doctors used to say had no function, and now some doctors are saying, hey, maybe it's not such a bad idea to leave it in after all. I don't know which is right, but you know, they say that there are certain, maybe certain parts of the body that do not have function. But when that comes, they don't, they don't take that diseased organ out and uh, put it on a display case and keep it as a part of the, of the souvenirs. You throw it away. And if God's through with you, and some older people, you know, they say, well, I've done my time, and I've served the Lord all these years, and if that's true, my friend, then dig your grave, because you're dead. If it's really true that God has no purpose, because you're a part of the body, and when you no longer are needed in the body, he'll take you home. And that will be glory. So don't worry about that and don't think that I'm being morbid tonight. But if everybody in the church that was, was, who was not functioning and involved in actual ministry, if every one of those people died this week, then they would call it a worse tragedy than, than the airline crash this week. Because more people than that would die. Can you imagine what it would be if God should suddenly decide, well, let's see, let's cut out all the deadwood. All the people who say, I don't have any place to serve. I don't have any purpose in life as far as the church is concerned. I get my activity outside the church, even though I'm a part of the church. I just go on Sunday and listen to the message. If God suddenly said, let's cut them all out. Boy, would I be busy. You know, I... I uh, haven't had very many funerals this year, praise the Lord for that. But man, I'll tell you, I'd be busy for a while having funerals. Would it be your funeral? Now, I, I, I shock you with that a little bit. Because you see, it's so easy for the teaching of this particular section just kind of pass over your head. And say, oh, that's fine for them. But me, no. Please don't do that. Now we looked already at... A person by the name of Ananias. Not the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira, but Ananias, the man who was the instrument that God used to focus in on the, on the Apostle Paul to bring him into the family of God. Later on, God would also use another man uh, that we won't be discussing, except in passing, and that was Barnabas, to further bring Paul into uh, good graces with those that were in, those in the early church. We said that Ananias was a picture of gracious service. His name means Yahweh is gracious. And we saw that he was available, that he was a little reluctant, as we often are, but that reluctance did not keep him from obedience because he was obedient. And then he was also gracious and demonstrated a real gracious spirit in saying to this one who was the enemy of the church up until that time, Brother Paul. Gracious service. And then we talked about Tabitha, called Dorcas. Her name meant doe or gazelle, which in the ancient world was a type and a picture of gentle service. It was a picture of gentleness, and her uh, expertise was that of gentle service. She had two areas. One had to do with substance, and we're going to save that until we get into stewardship, which is coming up. But the major ministry that she apparently had was just simply the use of a needle and thread, using those simple instruments to make clothes for those that were in need. And when she died, 
The mourners were out in mass because she'd ministered to so many people. You know, um, I often think in terms of the fact that that there there is a uh, a tremendous uh, lack today when an elderly person passes away after they've been sick for a, a period of time or so on, and and we have their funeral. It seems like people have kind of lost interest in them. But when a person is elderly and has right up to the last, as much as within their, was within their power, ministered, continued to minister to people, then all of the people come to whom they've ministered. And you know, um, I, I, just, I just heard the other day about this pilot who... Um, Went to the eye doctor. Did you read about this? And they put, they put what they thought were eye drops in his eyes uh, to dilate his eyes. And actually, the bottles had been mixed up, and it was a chemical that they used to, to soak their instruments. And he was instantly made blind. And he was a man who, who has been involved in the rescue of literally thousands of people uh, because he was a, a skilled pilot and able to go into places where other fellows couldn't fly and bring rescue equipment and so on. And, all of a sudden he got this deluge of mail from people that he had helped. And uh, if you are, are, are donating your life to people, people will never, never forget it. But if you back off and think that people ought to serve you, then people will say, I've done my bit for you. I've paid you back, you see. And as a result, they'll easily forget you. Now, I don't think that the memory of us all is the thing that's really important, but I think it just points out that Dorcas here was, had many pallbearers at her funeral, <laughs> except the funeral didn't come off because God intervened and she was raised from the dead. But the people who came were people who said, look, the clothes I'm wearing she made and gave to me. I was in rags, and she made me a new coat. She ministered to me. And that's so typical, you see, of the the true servant of the Lord. Now, some of you may not be able to sew, but I think in terms of, of Moses and God saying to him, Moses, what's in your hand? He said, a rod. Cast it down. Cast it down, it became a snake. He picked the snake up, and it became the rod. And several times after that, Moses referred to that rod, not as the rod of Moses, but as the rod of God. When you have something in your hand, some ability, some talent, or the spiritual gift that God has given to you, the Lord says to you, what's in your hand? Now that's the first thing. Are you willing to surrender what you have? And then are you willing to cast it down, to put it out of your hand? To give it up if need be, if that's what God wants. And to leave it there until God says, pick it up. There have been a great many people through the years that we've had opportunity to minister that have, have said, well, you know, when, when the Lord saved me, I uh, got terribly convicted about... Uh, let's say, photography, as an example. I, photography was my hobby, they would say. And uh, I was a nut about t- taking pictures. And you'd never see me without a camera. And everywhere I would go, I would, uh, I would be taking pictures. And uh, I gave that up when I became a Christian. I gave it, I surrendered it to the Lord. But after a short time, the Lord began to show me that that ability and that talent kept in perspective, in balance, and in right priority was an ability that God could use for His glory. And so I've committed myself to use my hobby for His honor, for His glory. What's that in your hand? A camera. Cast it down. Take it up. Some of you have ability in the area of of writing. And uh, you've been awfully busy doing a lot of things and serving the Lord in a lot of areas. And in a sense, your hobby has been put on the shelf. What's that in your hand? Cast it down. 
pick it up. All Tabitha had was needle and thread. But she used that to the glory of God. And God can use any talent or any ability that is dedicated to him. Oh, he may not use it in precisely the same way that the world would use it. For instance, in the area of music, as an example, I think that a lot of times, a lot of times people that have ability in the area of music don't understand or see the transition that can be made from that which is purely secular to that which is really a, spiritual, a part of a spiritual worship. But you can use those abilities and those talents that God has given you for his glory. Not so that you can be a great nightclub singer. That's a carnal goal in all likelihood. But so that you can sing his praise and his glory using your music. I think in terms of people whose lives have been, before they were Christians, have been caught up in the field of, of athletics. And I guess I would be classified with, with, in that category. Uh, and I think in terms of my own life, I had aspirations of being a professional basketball player. I was told that, uh, I, could have, that I could make it. And that was back in the days where a person could play professional basketball if he was only six foot tall. Um, there weren't that many uh, seven-footers that were running around, and now, you know, to play guard, you've got to be 6'5", so uh, I couldn't quite make it. But in any event, uh, I had the basic tools, I had the skills, I had the coaching, and the result was that I had to come to a place in my own life where I said, all right, Lord, I surrender to you athletics, and in particular basketball. I would have gladly surrendered a lot of other sports. It was tough to surrender basketball and say, all right, Lord, I'll, I'll surrender this to you. Give it to you. What's in your hand? A basketball. Throw it down. Pick it up. And you know, when, when God had me throw my basketball down, he dealt with my heart in terms of being a missionary. And I, at, at that time, of course, they didn't have Venture for Victory basketball teams or anything like that, or I might have had a, a little escape clause in there, you know, because now they have missionaries that are basketball players, you know. But I, I said, all right, Lord, I'll go to a jungle where they never heard of a basketball. I'm willing. And I was set to go, and go to Bolivia and gladly would have poured out my life in that land. And when God closed the door, guess what door he opened? working with young people, working with teenagers. And it was at that time that God said, all right, pick it up. And we put together all kinds of athletic teams and ministered to an awful lot of kids during those years as a result of just the ability that God had given. And uh, I still had it until my knees went out and then uh, I lost it. I haven't played basketball now. I played a little bit uh, when I first came here, but uh, haven't done it for a long time. And, you know, it's no, it's no big deal one way or another now. But I can honestly say that the Lord dealt with me about that thing to the place that I gave it up, and he gave it back. Now, your life is filled with all kinds of things like this. I think we go through this process a great deal of time in our life. I think the Lord says, you know, what are you, a financial wizard? Throw it down. Pick it up. See? It's our Isaac that has to be laid on the altar before the Lord. And we have to lay it down confident that we have to go through with giving it up entirely if that's what God wants. But at the same time, often the Lord says, pick it up and then use it for my glory. Because God is in the business of training people from their birth and putting experiences into your life that are going to be a part of your total package of life message so that your life can be a blessing and a challenge to multitudes of people. And God wants you to come to the place in your life where everything you have is surrendered to him so then he can give it back to you as he will. And then you can use it for his glory. So every one of us has things like that. Are you willing just to be used of God? There's a song that, that I love that has a phrase in it that just simply says this. To be used of God is my desire.
And that's not your desire. That's my desire. Well, that's the third of these illustrations. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 16. A very familiar passage. We've touched on it in the matter of soul winning. Now we touch on it again when it comes to the matter of service. And uh, yet, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we, we want to think in terms of Timothy. Timothy, who is a picture of genuine service. In the 16th chapter of Acts, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He has uh, just begun and uh, been already to a few places, went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches, that is, stabilizing the churches. And in chapter 16, it says, Then came he to Derby and Lystra. He'd been there five years before in his first missionary journey. At that time, we know that he was taken outside the city of, the, uh, of Lystra, and he was stoned. It is possible that uh, Paul died at that time and was caught up into the third heaven and then was resurrected from the dead. That's possible. At least it was a very injurious thing and God performed a miracle because he walked away from it. When we think of stoning, I don't know what you think of, but they didn't use little pebbles. They used boulders. And they often, and when we were in Nazareth, we, we saw the location uh, or probably or near there where there was a precipice Uh, where they actually wanted to throw Christ off at one time. But what they did in that place was they threw people off and then would drop stones on them until they were dead. And this was a very common practice because there was a calling for stoning in a number of cases according to Old Testament law. And it was allowed to a degree by the Romans. And so Paul was stoned at this place. Now you can imagine he has just apparently led a teenager to the Lord by the name of Timothy. And this teenager sees this miracle and sees the Apostle Paul and his, his uh, real intestinal fortitude as he rises up from that stoning and instead of running the other way, he goes right back into the city and again begins to preach Jesus. <laughs> that must have had an impact on this young Timothy's life. And so Timothy in the next five years, matured tremendously. And Paul comes back and finds him there. It says, Behold, a certain, there's our word, disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman who was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well reported of by the brethren, which were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, this is a young man who's, who is the son in the faith of the Apostle Paul. Mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois, had taught him the Holy Scriptures from his youth up. And when Paul came with the message of Jesus Christ, he put two and two together and came up with a well-rounded four. And he sought that Jesus Christ indeed was the Messiah, and he accepted Christ as his Savior. Timothy, the name, means honoring God or valued of God. And we've stated that what we believe is characteristic of this young man was genuine service. He was a real servant. It says in verse 2 of chapter 16 that he was well reported of by the brethren that were in Lystra and Iconium. If you look over at Philippians chapter 2, there in Philippians 2, we see a little bit of a picture of the genuine service of this man, Timothy. In verse 20 of chapter 2, it says, For I, uh, verse 19 says, I trust in the Lord to send Timotheus, or Timothy, shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. That's one of my favorite verses in the book of Philippians. I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Why? Well, because all seek their own and not the things which are Christ Jesus. 
But Timothy is different. Timothy has that natural concern for the needs of other people. Now, if you go through the rest of the book of Acts, if you study carefully the book of Philippians and the two epistles to Timothy, you discover that the major thing that Timothy did until the death of the Apostle Paul was run errands for Paul. You've heard of a gopher, haven't you? Go for this, go for that, go for the other thing. That's exactly what Timothy was. He was a gopher. It says in verse 22 of Philippians 2, But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the father he hath served with me in the gospel. He had participated in the slave life with the apostle Paul. But in a sense, Paul, you see, was the slave. So what does that make his slave? Well, the slaves in that day, the bond slaves, the doulos, were considered to be less than human. They were considered to be merely animals. A man could kill a slave and uh, throw him on the garbage heap. He looks like a person with a dog. And there was no reprisal whatsoever. He's your property. You can do with him what you want. That was the condition of that day. Paul says, I'm a slave. But if a slave has a slave, what do you think that second level would be? It wasn't much. There's a fascinating uh, little word uh, that's translated uh, ministers in the book of Acts. And the word literally means an under-rower. And what they were was they were upper-rowers and they were under-rowers. The upper-rowers were on the deck of the ship, of the old galley ship. And they had oars there that they would utilize from that position. And there was air there. And the privileged slaves would be on the top. But down below in the hold, there also were under rowers. And these under rowers had no, no uh, circulation. And you can imagine the terrible conditions as they tried to row the, the great galley ship. And uh, they were under rowers. And the apostles called themselves under rowers, ministers. They weren't the ones on the deck that were privileged slaves. They were the, the low. Well, see, Timothy was an underroar. He was one who ministered in a personal way to Paul. If you look at 2 Timothy 4.13, you'll see a little further. Paul is near his death. And uh, he's writing his letter to Timothy... And saying, you know, that the end is near and all of the rest. And uh, he says in verse 11, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee. For he is profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I left in Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee. And the books, but especially the parchments. Now wait a minute. Who's your errand boy last year? You know? I mean, after all. I mean, he's sending this guy all over the place. Pick up Mark and be sure and get Tychicus. And then be sure and get, go to Troas and pick up my coat. And uh, good night. He's just ordering this guy around as if he's nothing. But you see, Timothy was a genuine servant. It gave him joy to be able to serve. Now, mind you, he became uh, a real leader in the early church. And God used him in a marvelous way, you can imagine. But he was a man who, who became all things to all men. And when you go to, go to 2 Timothy 1.5, you see that he had a good home background that undoubtedly taught him some of these qualities. And then his testimony was that he was well reported of. He had that characteristic of an elder. Uh, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. You see some of the qualifications for elders. And uh, in verse 7, it says, Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are outside. And it's stated specifically that Timothy had a good reputation with those who knew him, even with the unbelievers. So he had that quality. But his task was merely to be with Paul and then to be sent forth by Paul to do specific tasks. And you see, remember at the very beginning of this section, we talked about the fact that Christ wanted his disciples to be with them so he could send them forth. Paul wanted Timothy to be with him so he could send him forth. 
And so he was a sent one. If you go through the, 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 the book of Acts and the epistles, uh, not including First and Second Timothy. It's not fair to go in there because it, there's too many of them, okay? But there are some tremendous examples from, from Timothy. Everything in First and Second Timothy is addressed to Timothy. So uh, you can just pick out all kinds of examples there. But in the epistles and in the book of Acts, he's mentioned by name no less than 28 times. Six times in the book of Acts, 22 times in the epistles. Now get this. Of those 28 times, excluding First and Second Timothy, 10 of them are accompanied by the verb stayed twice, sent four times, come four times. Out of 28 mentions of his name, and the others have some implications along the same line, but specifically... 10 out of the 28 times, it says, come, sent Timothy, stay, all in relationship to the name, not uh, all the context and all of the rest of it. That means that the name is mentioned, and right afterward, we have those verbs. He was a servant, a genuine servant. And in 2 Timothy, you go through that, and you just find out that Paul is shouting orders at him, boom, 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 do this, do that, do the other thing. We saw that already in 2 Timothy 4. And so Timothy was an example of genuine service. Now, I wonder if we can identify with Timothy. We should, you know. When you think in terms of this man and how God used him, remember that Paul went from uh, Philippi and the persecution there down to Thessalonica. He spent three weeks in Thessalonica and taught the people. Then he went south and he continued to go and he came to Corinth. He told Timothy, go back to Thessalonica. Timothy went back to Thessalonica, just an errand boy. Found out how things were going. Came back and told Paul, Paul, we got a problem in Thessalonica. When he explained the problem, Paul sat down and wrote 1 Thessalonians and ministered to those people as a result of Timothy's report. Timothy is intricately related to the ministry of the Apostle Paul in almost every one of his epistles. And many times, Timothy was the one doing the penmanship. In other cases, he was the one that was sent with the letter he was just available to be used of God. Again, what's in your hand? A pen? A typewriter? Throw it down. Pick it up. Here was a man who, who was a servant and became a great leader. All right. Now, the next thing then, the next group uh, of verses that we want to look at is over in the 21st chapter. Acts chapter 21 and verses 16 and 17. There went out with us also certain of the disciples. Now mind you, there are other places where service is, is indicated, but these are specifically with, with the word disciple involved. They were disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one by the name of Nason. The M is silent. Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. That's all we know about Nason. Nason came to Paul at a crisis moment in his life. Paul's friends had tried to dissuade him from going up to Jerusalem, knowing what would befall him there. And there is a disciple, who was an early disciple, it says, from Cyprus, accompanied Paul on his journey. 
He apparently was a man of some wealth because he apparently, though he was from Cyprus, had a home in the city of Jerusalem. The name Nason means a diligent seeker. A diligent seeker. And I like to think of him as being one who is involved in generous service. His ability was simply that of hospitality. Now, I, uh, I hear so many times uh, people saying, well, I really don't have any talents. I don't have any abilities. I, there's nothing I can do for the Lord. How could I ever serve the Lord? What's that in your hand? Nothing. Do you know, any person can be hospitable. One of the problems that we have is that we get the idea that hospitality involves the having someone to your house who is well-known or famous or popular or something else. People think hospitality, that means you're supposed to have the preacher over to your house. I'll be very frank with you. We, we don't have m- much time to accept invitations to your house. Uh, we're well taken care of with meetings and so on and so forth. And uh, besides, uh, half the time we're on a diet anyway. So, you know, it's no big deal if you don't invite me to your house. But, you know, there are lonely people in a congregation like ours who never get an invitation. Have you ever looked around the room and seen someone who's always alone? Have you ever thought that maybe that that person, especially you know, if it's one of these skinny little gals, you know, that's all by herself, that maybe she would need enough that it would bother at all? Grab her and take her home, and uh, you know, maybe she'll fool you, and you'll have to give up a little bit, but that won't hurt you, you know. But you know, really, it would be so easy. We have a tendency to entertain people we like, as an example. Isn't that right? I mean, would you ever invite somebody to your house you don't like? Hospitality is something that is spoken of more than almost any other kind of service in the New Testament other than public ministries like preaching, teaching, that, that kind of thing, exhorting. This kind of thing is, of course, mentioned more. But when it comes to specific service, responsibilities, and opportunities, hospitality outweighs them all. The word means, get this, to entertain strangers. Do you hear that? Strangers. Mainly, people who were not a part of the polis or the city-state in which you lived. He was considered an exenos or a, a stranger, someone who was outside. But it also referred to people that you did not know well. It was implied in the very meaning of the word. And so therefore, hospitality was a service for where there was risk involved, where you were taking a chance, at least to a degree. Look over at Romans 12 as an example. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13, where it's listing a number of things that are specifically related to spiritual gifts as well, but um, they also have a relationship to all believers just by the way they're listed here. In verse 13 it says, distributing to the necessity of the saints, that's koinonia, It's the word distributing, and it means to share with them. And it has the idea of giving. Giving to the need of the saints. And given to hospitality. The idea being that you are are really gripped with this kind of a goal. Given to hospitality. If you were to go, and we won't take time to turn to it, but you can mark it down the flyleaf of your memory, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and also in Titus 1, 8, these two passages of Scripture have qualifications for elders. And in both lists, 
given to hospitality or being hospitable is given as one of the qualifications for elders. In Hebrews chapter 13, look over there. Hebrews chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Uh, that, of course, again, is phileo love, that rapport love that you build in relationships. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. There is the word for hospitality. Don't be forgetful to entertain strangers. Now, the first verse is encouraged. The second verse is imperative. Don't you dare forget to entertain strangers. Why? For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That, of course, was Abraham. Now, don't think that if you invite some person in church that he's going to turn out to be an angel. He might turn out to be a devil, for all you know. But uh, what it's saying is that Abraham was just, he just opened his home, opened his tent, and said, come in. And they came in, and then he found out later they were angels. In fact, it was the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, the pre-incarnate appearance. He was indeed the angel of Jehovah. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And look at verse 9. This is an interesting thing because it says in verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. In other words, time is short. What he was talking about here in 1 Peter was they were under Nero's persecution. The opportunities that they would have to even even, uh, get together were going to be limited. They They were under tremendous pressure. And so he says the end of all things, the present circumstances they're they're having, is at hand. It's right outside the door. Be therefore sober-minded and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without griping about it. Oh, do we have to have people over again? Oh, man, I'm so tired of that. You know, I... I can hardly remember a week in our home where we didn't share a meal with somebody. If we ever had them, I sure can't remember them. And my parents taught us to use hospitality without grudging. Oh, do we have company all the time? Do I have to dress up for them? Ah, you know. And we got our talking to because my parents were hospitable. They constantly were opening their home. To people they didn't know. My, my mom is really outgoing, you know. And uh, she, people warm up to her real quick. My dad's a little harder to get to know. And uh, mom was always inviting people over. Boy, you know, every stray dog that was around, you know. <laughs> I mean, she just, she could find the lame, the halt, and the blind. She'd go into the highways and byways and find them. I can never forget that um, uh, we, we were in a park having a picnic in Spokane and uh, my mom just loves people and uh, she saw that there was my dad at the time was interim pastor in a covenant church and she saw that at the, at the, uh, there in the park there was a great big covenant church picnic and uh, she thought well boy I'm going to go find out you know, let everybody know who I am and find out who and so on she went running down there you know and a few minutes later here she's dragging the pastor back to meet her family and so on and so forth and, and uh, he came and, and he sat there stood there and he looked you know at the table and, and uh, we didn't have much left we just about finished eating but there was a gizzard there and finally you know he said uh, is anybody going to eat that gizzard <laughs> and my mom says no eat it you know <laughs> no problem <laughs> You can even give, give gizzards to the covenant church pastor, you know. I mean, she, and, and that was a part of our lifestyle. But you know, I think in terms of, of the molding of my life as a result of the contact with some of those people. When I married Gloria, she couldn't get over it. Because we'd meet total strangers and start talking a few minutes later. You know, we'd find out they knew my dad or something else, you know. And we'd go on and on and on. And, and uh, this happened time after time after time, no matter where we went. No matter what we were doing. And she'd never get over it. But, you know, my parents made a tremendous amount of friends around the world 
as a result of their ministry to people. Now, you really, you think of that. What a blessing we're missing in this age where everything is so hurried, you know, and specialized, and we just don't have time for each other, and we're so busy. And when you think in terms of the interplay in the body of Christ and how important it is that we contribute to the spiritual growth of one another, and then you think of the minimum contact that we really do have, what a tragedy. Well, of course, Third John, the whole book, as you remember in our study there, talks about hospitality. The purpose of the whole book is to make sure the church understands the responsibility that they have and the commendation that came to Gaius as a result of his hospitality. So, uh, Nason, we don't know much about him. All we know is he opened his home to Paul, and it was dangerous. It was dangerous. Paul was a marked man in the city of Jerusalem. Hours later, he would be taken into bonds. They already knew that that's what was going to happen. But this man took him in and welcomed him into his home, even at the jeopardy of his own life. Some people say, by the way, uh, that what does it mean when it says that he was a, uh, uh, an early uh, believer, that he was an early disciple? It could easily mean, it could easily be technical, a technical term to speak of one who came to know Christ while Christ was still on earth. He may have been one of the 120 that were in the upper room. He may have been one of that uh, group of folk that were sent out by Jesus Christ. We don't know the names of most of those people, and so it could be that that's what that means. There are a number of interpretations of that. No one can be dogmatic about it, but it could well mean that this man was one who also had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the last one is in Acts chapter 16. We just have time to finish this up, and then we'll get to the next subject next week. Acts chapter 16, and beginning at verse 23. Let me give you the background. Paul has responded to the Macedonian call in chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. They came across the Aegean Sea to a place called Neapolis, and then hiked down south to Philippi, a little bit inland, After uh, he came, he preached the gospel and uh, ministered to the people, to the women that were by the riverbank. You recall we talked about that when we talked about Lydia's conversion in the matter of soul winning. And uh, then, of course, he healed the demon-possessed girl, and they were thrown in prison. They were singing praise to God at midnight. There was an earthquake. And the Philippian jailer said, What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. We also talked about that when we talked about the matter of um, the, the matter of soul winning and the disciple. Now, this person is not called a disciple. It's one of the, the illustrations that I wanted to draw, even though he's not specifically called a disciple. All the others, Dorcas and uh, Ananias and uh, uh, Nason and uh, the, the others... Uh, all of them were called specifically disciples. But this one was not called a disciple. But I think you'll see why I picked it. Because it rounds out this whole picture. We don't know his name. All we know is that he's the Philippian jailer. And uh, the characteristic of him is grateful service. If you'll notice, beginning at verse 23, after the conversion of this man, it says when they had, uh, let's start at verse 25, at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prison was shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loose. The keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, immediately. 
And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Now here's a fellow who's just been saved. And immediately, immediately, he demonstrates a grateful, giving heart. You say, well, that's true. When a person first accepts Christ, I can remember how I was. But what happens? Do you want to know what happens? Christians have a tendency to be around other Christians. And that sometimes is bad news. They pick up bad habits. They follow your example. It's too bad. That's the way it is. Howard Hendricks once said that he'd like to have a group of fellows that he leads to the Lord and keep them away from Christians for a couple of years. So he could teach them what the Scripture says about what they ought to be without being exposed to all these wet blankets. This new Christian comes on with all of his enthusiasm and the old Christian sits there and says, oh, he'll get over it. And he does. Makes a profit out of you. The only thing is that it may be your fault that he does. We have a tendency to squelch the enthusiasm of the new believer. And we have a tendency to sort of poo-poo the things that that he does that that show an unusual zeal. And we sort of think, well, you know, he'll get over the enthusiasm. There's nothing wrong with enthusiasm. That's a good Greek word. In theos. In God. That's where we get the word enthusiasm. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with being a little excited about the Lord. There's nothing wrong with reaching out and, and, and seeking to say thank you in some way because we can't, we don't even know how yet to say thank you to God and so we say thank you to people. We have a tendency to say, oh, he'll, he'll get over it. He'll soon learn and he does. Would to God that we would quit being so cotton-picked and sophisticated and remember the pit from which we've been dug. Remember, and I'll tell you, if you're a new believer here tonight, follow these people, as Sandy Martin was saying to the deacons last night, follow these people as they follow Christ. But for goodness sakes, if they're doing things that they shouldn't, like not being hospitable and, and generous and loving and kind and all the rest, don't pay attention to them. You go right ahead. And if they tromp on you, you let me know. We'll get something fixed up. I love, to, I love enthusiastic new Christians. And I think we ought to be constantly exposed to that kind of, of new zeal so that we never lose it. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of just ho-hum Christian living. And there is nothing ho-hum about the Christian life. It is the most thrilling, the most exciting, the most dynamic experience a person could ever have. On a day-by-day -day basis. It's not dependent on circumstances. Circumstances can be up and down. It doesn't depend on how you feel. It has nothing to do with that at all. It has entirely to do with the position that we have in Jesus Christ, which is absolutely secure from all eternity. And it's fixed in the character of God. And because God never changes, we can be joyous even in the midst of the worst kind of pressure and sorrow. And if that isn't dynamite, I don't know what it is. Why in the world do we have so many grumpy Christians walking around? Part of it's because they're learning from each other. See? Focus on Jesus Christ and realize that Christ said, I, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And we'll forget so often that that is to be an abundant life. And Christ is satisfied with nothing less than abundance for the life of the believer. And so if you're in the doldrums in your Christian life, maybe you need to win somebody to the Lord so you can see their enthusiasm. But you see, here is a man who responds just saying, thank you, thank you for what you've done, and ministers to God's servants because of the fact that they have pointed him to a knowledge of Jesus Christ grateful service. Well now, 
I think you can see that this gives us a pretty well-rounded view of the concept of service. And there's a lot of variety there, but it doesn't cover the whole gamut. There's much more. You fill in the blanks. If we didn't touch on your particular ability or talent or, or opportunity, don't let that, th- that thwart you at all. Because God wants to use every member of the body of Christ to the building up of every other member, ministering one to another. What he needs from you is, to get right back to Ananias, is availability. God never operates on the basis of ability. He operates on the basis of availability. Are you available? Let's pray. Now, just a moment with our heads bowed. Why don't you just take this moment and use it to simply say, Okay, Lord, this is what's in my hand. I cast it down. And as you direct, I'll take it up again. Make sure that you're not keeping anything in your hand. Surrender it all. Your children, your home, your money, your job, cast it down. Now, in God's own time, he'll tell you what to take up and what not to take up. Just remember, from now on, it's his. That doesn't mean you don't go to work tomorrow. Because in all likelihood, that's what he wishes for you to do. You continue your routine of living, but it's with a new ownership. You're under new management. Now, why don't you just tell the Lord, All right, Lord, I'm available now for whatever service you desire. Don't say anything but this. Say anything, Lord. Now, thirdly, just thank him for what he's going to do through you tomorrow. And each day, just thank him. As he directs you, you be faithful, you'll be obedient, you walk in fellowship with him, moment by moment surrendering your time and your abilities to him. Just give it to him. Don't take anything back until he gives it to you. And even then, remember it belongs to him. But just let him use you in service. Be available. Maybe he wants you to teach a Sunday school class. Maybe you've been thinking about that, but you've just not been willing. Or maybe sing in the choir. Or, or maybe just visit that neighbor or bring a meal to someone that's needy. Care for them in some way. Or write a letter to a missionary. Or send a gift to someone who has need. I don't know what it may be. The Lord will make it clear to you. Don't worry about that. Just be available. Be willing. And don't hold back from what he wants you to do. Father in heaven, just help us now to be totally yielded to you. Lord, we we would just go around the spectrum of our own experience in life. Our house, our car, our job, our wife, our family. We think in terms of talents and abilities, pleasures and desires. We take them all and lay them at your feet and let you hand them back to us as you will. But right now we surrender them. And if you hand them back, we will remember you own them. And as to our time and our service for you, we would surrender and simply say, Lord, I'm available. I'm ready for orders. I'm under your command. Grant, Father, that we may go from here tonight with a whole new spectrum of opportunities of service before us and a new set of priorities. Lord, if you want us to serve by prayer, if you want us to serve 
by winning souls? Do you want us to serve by ministry in our own family or by ministry through our family to others? We just say, Lord, we're available to be used of you is our desire. Thank you for what you're going to do, not only in my life, but in the lives of these, my friends, as well. In Christ's name, amen.